We're going to start in Psalms 99. The Lord rules, the nations shake. He sits enthroned on the winged heavenly creatures. The earth quakes. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them thank your great and awesome name. He is holy. Strong king who loves justice, you are the one who established what is fair. You work justice and righteousness in Jacob. Magnify the Lord our God. Bow low at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel, too, among those who called his name. They cried out to the Lord, and he himself answered them. He spoke to them for a, from a pillar of cloud. They kept the laws and the rules God gave to them. Lord our God, you answered them. To them you were a God who forgives, but also the one who avenged their wrong deeds. Magnify the Lord our God, bow low at his holy mountain, because the Lord our God is holy. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so really, you guys ready to get a little weird? Here's the scripture for today. It comes from Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So he had 12 core followers, but he took these three separately. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Think Gandalf the Grey turning to Gandalf the White. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Um, that's a strong word, terrified. Um, let that sink in a little bit. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then to the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So we have a story of Jesus taking three of his followers up a mountain, um, and then while they're praying, he starts glowing. And when they really kind of focus in on the fact that this guy that they follow around is glowing, two ancient, thousand, more than thousands of years old leaders of Israel appear and are having a chat with their glowing friend. And... Uh, then God interrupts Peter in all of Peter's wisdom and says, this is my son, listen to him, as in maybe stop talking, Peter. 
Um, and then they fall on their faces. They come back up, everything's normal, it's just Jesus. And then they find out that John the Baptist is Elijah. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Didn't make it up, it's in three of the Gospels. So, Have, has anybody ever heard anything preached on the Transfiguration? Anybody ever just glossed past it because it was too weird? Any thoughts at all? No, that's great. Um, if I can summarize for those online, general idea was this is a, a place where we see two aspects of the Trinity interacting with one another, the Father and the Son. And so being able to see that interaction helps us to kind of get our heads around what it means that there are three distinct aspects of one Trinity. Thank you. Anybody else? Any thoughts on why we have this story? Like, why did this happen? That's great. Um, so things that are very emotionally intense are going to stick out more in our memories. That's actually a key part of, of why I think it's in there. So thank you. All right. Um, a little bit of context. You know I like the history stuff. So... Um, Jesus, uh, this, is, this is three years into Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. And as we've talked before a little bit, the majority of Jesus' public ministry was spent in the north. Um, so if you picture, there was the north, and then uh, Samaria, and then the south. And Jerusalem was in the south. So for any fantasy uh, fans out there, if you've seen Firefly, this would be kind of like you have the Alliance, which are the core planets. This is where everything is much more structured. You have the government centralized here. Everything is much more caste system kind of set up. Everything is just a little more rigid. When you get into the outer rim or the outer planets, you think, see that things are a little more wibbly. Um, there is a, a different kind of diversity. There is less that's decentralized as far as how people are experiencing their government and experiencing their religion. It's not that people weren't still faithful to Judaism, but it just it looked different because they were further away from that center of power. The reason this is important is because around this time, this three-year mark, this is when a lot of the miracles and teachings and uh, healings that we've seen already happen in the north Jesus starts to replicate those in the South. And so sometimes we'll see certain miracles in the Gospels where we see it happen one way early in his ministry and another way late in his ministry. When you read chronologically, one of the reasons for that is that he is starting to do some of the same things closer to that center of power. As we see, that very quickly gets him um, to the cross because he is closer to, to those seats of power and he is a threat to those seats of power. And so um, as those things start to happen closer to Jerusalem, we see more interaction with the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, more public accusations, things like that start to happen. So right before the transfiguration in Matthew, the thing that just happened was that um, Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah. Um, Jesus told Peter, you are the one on whom I will build my church. And um, Jesus has predicted his death for the first time to the disciples. Obviously, they don't fully understand what's going to happen. They just know that all of a sudden they have this really scary information from him that he's going to die soon. They're still trying to wrap their heads around that whole thing. And then 
we see this transfiguration. These three people, Peter, James, and John, um, they are going to be the, the core of the launch of the church once Jesus died and is, is resurrected. And so we can speculate as to why he only um, revealed his glory as a shorthand for the transfiguration, revealed his glory to these three. We don't know why the other nine weren't involved other than, to your point, they were about to go through the hardest season of their time with Jesus. Everything was going to be questioned. They were going to be in the public eye. He was going to get arrested. They were going to have to watch him die. Like, they are about to face a lot of tragedy and then have the responsibility of launching a brand new faith structure within Judaism. This moment solidifies for them, I would hope, that Jesus is more than just a prophet who came to speak a new word to, to the Israelites. There is something about Jesus that is altogether other while also being human. We can't rationalize our way to an understanding of that. We're, as Christians, we believe some weird stuff. We're about to go into a 40-day season of sacrifice leading up to the celebration of somebody coming back from the dead as a new type of human being. Like, it's, it's a little weird. <laughs> and that's okay, because if you're in this room, if you're listening, my hope is that at some point you've encountered that other. You've encountered Jesus in a way that even if you can't explain, you know is real and you know is compelling. And if you haven't had that encounter, you have at least had that call of faith. And if you're not sure where you are in that journey, leadership team, formation team, Pastor Melinda, we're here to help walk each other through understanding where we are in those journeys. But we believe in this because we feel compelled by the truth of who Jesus is. But Jesus was more than a good man, and he was more than just a prophet. And in this moment, he lifts that veil and allows these three disciples to see the fullness of what that means. And they will most likely be holding on to this moment as they go through the next two years of their lives. We have these two visitors that show up, and I'm just going to give a little bit of context on why I think they might have been involved. This is not, um, there are lots and lots of theories about the transfiguration. You can find as weird or as normal of an explanation as possible. I really kind of land here that they needed something that would solidify for them why they were choosing to face what they faced. Um, but there is significance to these two other characters who show up. The first is Moses, and I, I do believe that Moses here represents um, the Old Testament leaders as a whole. Um, Moses was the man through whom the exodus happened from Egypt. He led them out of slavery. He led them through the wilderness. God delivered the law to him on a mountain where he also glowed, um, just because we like glowing people sometimes <laughs> in the Bible. Um, that law informed the civil, judicial, theological, familial, agricultural, hygienic, religious, and diplomatic practices of the people. I give you that word salad just to, to hopefully cast a net of all that the law encompassed, all that the law was meant to offer to the people of Israel as they developed themselves as a people. Yeah. 
Yes, so Moses was old, like very early Old Testament, um, first books of the Bible. So yes, the people of Israel within the Old Testament coming from being a, a group of slaves in Egypt and becoming their own people, their own nation, their own culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Moses was also the one who received the covenant between God and Israel, that promise that if you will do these things, I will be your God, and I will do these things for you as my people. Um, there was the structure and practices for the tabernacle, which was the first holy place for them to worship while they were wandering in the wilderness. There was also then instruction given on a temple once they had landed in a specific place. But I know if you've tried to read the, the Bible in a year or read through like Leviticus, there's all this detail about the decorations and the sculptures and the carvings and the tapestries and all of these tools that they were supposed to create and how each one was supposed to be handled. The whole idea behind that was, was to drench the idea of this space in as much intention as possible when the people would come to meet with their God. All of that came through Moses. Um, and then their journey to the promised land. Um, Moses led them up until they were ready to go into the promised land. He did not take them across the finish line. Joshua did that. But Moses led them all the way up to that point. Moses represents the organizational leadership of Israel as a people. And then we have Elijah who I believe represents the prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah was one of the most significant prophets. We see a lot of his life, which we don't necessarily get with the other prophets, um, but we see a lot of Elijah's life in uh, First and Second Kings. And Elijah was around, we think, roughly 870 to 450 BC, somewhere in there. We're not totally sure where. But Elijah called the people back to that covenant, that covenant that Moses established with the people. Elijah was calling them back after generations of people doing more evil in the sight of God than their fathers had done. So this is one of the times that God sends somebody into the community and says, I'm calling you back to be faithful to what you promised, and I can be faithful to what I promised. Um, some of the major events in Elijah's life include him praying through a drought for rain, a standoff with the prophets of Baal, if any of these stories ring any bells. Um, he battled against Ahab and Jezebel, um, big name from the Old Testament. Uh, he provided for a widow who was not Jewish and uh, raised her son from the dead. And God spoke to him in stillness when he was in a cave. So some of these stories that we've heard, they all center around this same person. The prophets often said and did bizarre things. The intention was for them to make an impact on the people to fully understand the relationship that they had with the divine and how that was being um, violated in the ways that they were treating one another, uh, false idols, things like that. Uh, the prophets were there to warn of the consequences of breaking the covenant, point out specific ways that they were doing this and why these sins grieved God. Again, when you look at the messages of the prophets, you see a lot in there about how they're treating the disenfranchised, a lot about how they're treating their relationship to the divine, a lot about their selfishness and greed. 
Uh, the prophets would also foretell specific ways that God would punish sin so that they would understand that the consequences that they experienced were related to their sin. Here's what we're not going to do today. We're not going to unpack that relationship. I 1,000% do not believe that God causes bad things to happen because of sin. Um, you can have a different theology from me on that. Happy to talk through that sometime. 100% do not believe that that ever was or ever will be the case. So a lot of this is within the context of how we understand the Old Testament to be the story of a people understanding their God. It can be complicated. I believe in the Old Testament. I believe in the Bible. But I also believe that they were written for specific purposes and times. Um, and we are blessed with the ability to find the transcendent truths that are there, which I believe absolutely are there. But while I am talking about a passage that shows a cause and effect, I am not saying that God causes bad things in relation to sin. I'm saying that's how they understood their covenant. Does that track? Okay. Anybody feeling a little stirred up by that, feel free to talk to me after. Um, but I just want to make that abundantly clear. Um, and then the last part, the part that we often miss for the prophets, is that they always brought a message of hope and of restoration and of redemption, which is beautiful. Some of those beautiful passages in Scripture are the prophets talking about what God is promising to do if they will return to faithfulness to him. So in my opinion, Moses and Elijah are here representing God's power and his leadership of his people throughout the covenant of the Old Testament, from the Exodus up through Jesus' day. And then we see Jesus say that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in other places, right? And so we see Jesus fully in his glory, whatever that means, but fully representing being fully God, fully man, and he is there as these two bear witness to him within that role. I know this is heady, and I said it was weird, but I think at the end of the day, the purpose of this was to establish for those who would start the church that Jesus was fully other while also being fully theirs, which is the reality of our relationship with the divine. Fully other, fully ours, and we are actually reflecting part of that image into the world. So Peter's response is to talk, um, because that's Peter's response, it seems like, throughout the scriptures. Um, the other Gospels have little notes, little sassy remarks in there that, Mark, or that Matthew doesn't include, that basically all together tell us he was so scared he didn't know what to do. So he started talking. Like literally it says he's talking because he's scared and doesn't know what else to do. I would probably do the same. <laughs> um, he understands that they're bearing witness to a supernatural event. And for the Israelites, there were ways that they consecrated an interaction with the divine. They would name wells where God had interacted with them. They would build structures. They would build altars. They would put rocks together. They would carve on large stones names for God. They had these ways all throughout their history where they would memorialize a space where God had interacted, and then they would come back and visit that space. That's what Peter is proposing when he says, I'll build some shelters 
one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Like this, a, a, an important thing has happened. We need a way to come back and remember this. This was most likely a collective response. Peter often, I think, gets a bad rap because he's the only one who gets named out in all of these times. We really do think that as far as the authors are concerned, he was just the scapegoat, but that these were often collective responses that he just represented. But regardless, within this, as Peter is babbling through his nerves, um, God breaks in. Now, the other time that we see God break in pretty much exactly like this is at Jesus' baptism. These are events that are important enough for God himself to break through the time-space continuum that he has established and speak directly just to these three. And I think that's really important. This wasn't... God didn't wait until he could make the most impact for the most number of people to break through and speak. He thought that it was worthwhile to break into these three people and to speak over Jesus. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It's significant that it doesn't take a large crowd or impressive people for God to break through. My hope is that where each of you need breakthrough, you will continue to have faith that that will happen. Maybe not the way we expect, and yes, yeah, sometimes we do get disappointed, but the invitation is still there to believe that it can happen. So then Jesus responds to them, tells them, do not be afraid. Very common passage we see whenever there's a supernatural breakthrough into our world, um, be it angels or God or whoever else it might be. And he explains, because they're, they're understanding, okay, our scriptures say that there is going to be a Messiah. We have recently said we understand you are that Messiah. But we thought Elijah had to come first, but you're already doing this stuff. So what does all that Elijah stuff mean? What he's referring to is a whole bunch of prophecies in the Old Testament about Elijah coming before the, the Messiah. So you can look those up and find them, but it's, it's a common thread throughout the later prophetic books. Um, and Jesus explains to them, Elijah did come. They, they begin to understand that Elijah was um, who John the Baptist represented. John's ministry started before Jesus. He was baptizing in the Jordan River near Jerusalem, so near that center of power. Our understanding is that John most likely lived kind of a monastic life up to this point. What was so controversial about John is that he was calling Jews to be baptized. Now, baptism was something that happened within the Jewish religion if somebody wanted to convert. Um, remember, we've got a religion that is very about clean and unclean, holy and unholy. Gentiles were completely unholy. And so a baptism, this water, represented this idea that you're being cleansed of your heathenness and being welcomed into the, the community of, the, of the, the called, the holy. But John was calling Jewish people to get baptized, which would have actually been incredibly offensive. Why would the people of God, who already present their offerings, present their sacrifices, do all of the things that they're supposed to do according to the covenant, how dare you call them unclean? How dare you call us to repentance? And yet people were showing up in droves. We can spend a whole sermon on that someday. But all of this is to say, Jesus is pointing out that John the Baptist was serving as Elijah. 
He was calling the people to repentance. He was speaking a message of restoration and redemption. He was calling the people back to their God. And he was making the way for Jesus to come in and to be able to walk through his ministry. At the end of the day, we understand that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the prophecies that Elijah would come. Jesus was the Messiah that had been prophesied as well. And so as we look at this passage, um, today is Transfiguration Sunday in the church calendar. Um, We go into Lent on Wednesday. The reason I think that it's important for us to remember the Transfiguration at this particular time is because we don't have the same methods in place to remember the things that God has done, to remember the places that God has interacted with us. If you've ever had a really holy moment by a lake and you've taken a rock from the shore to to keep as a reminder, that's close to what we're talking about. But on a communal level, as a community, we have our churches, we have our, our altars, but we don't have stones with the names of God carved into them. We don't have wells that we can go back to and say our church father encountered God here. But we do have our spiritual practices and we have our disciplines and we have the church calendar and we have our gatherings. These are our touchstones. These are the places we go. These are the things that we do to remember God has been faithful and we believe God can be faithful again. We create holy, spo- holy spaces to remember the divine, to worship the divine, and to make ourselves available to interacting with the divine again. One of the weird things that we do, um, well, let me ask this first. How many of you have never um, celebrated a season of Lent before? Okay, so we do have some folks. So real quick, the general idea is that for the 40 days leading up to to, um, Easter, and that 40 does not count Sundays, we are called to fast. Um, The idea of giving something up voluntarily. And if you were at Eat, Strengths, and Orthodoxy this month, we we dug into fasting like at a really deep level. Um, But the general idea is you choose to give something up, you choose to engage in a little bit of suffering Um, as you lead up to the celebration of Jesus' ultimate suffering, death, and then resurrection. Um, Some of the reasons that we we can fast, you can think of it as a sacrifice of an offering. So in a lot of spiritual spaces, you would leave an offering on an altar. So for spring, it would be, you know, new flowers or maybe some berries, something that represents new growth. And you would leave that just as an offering of, like, Gratitude for the blessings that the season is bringing. The most significant cultural experience we have for this is Thanksgiving, where we come and, and we, we have this bounty and we, we eat as a way of celebrating and showing gratitude for um, the provision that we have. Um, we can also fast as a way of um, showing connection with those who are experiencing involuntary suffering. So maybe you fast meat and sweets as a way of remembering how much we have access to and the money that you save on your grocery bills for that month, maybe you put aside and then you donate to a food bank or to Lula or to Jolt. 
as a way of saying I understand there are people who are suffering who aren't choosing it, and I want my voluntary suffering to somehow be able to help those folks. Um, in ancient times, fasting from food specifically, if you think about how much time would have to go into preparing and um, preserving food before the days of ice boxes and, you know, ice, <laughs> there were, huh? Yeah, ice box, yeah, exactly. There were, they had to use salt and they had to use like very basic time sense or time uh, processes that would take a lot of time to be able to preserve food during harsher seasons when they couldn't necessarily grow or harvest, that kind of thing. So that time that got freed up by not eating could then be spent on more spiritual endeavors, reading, prayer, giving, just spending time with the people in your life or with others. Um, and then again, the idea of creating something to benefit others. Um, you can also look at this as taking on a new practice. So maybe you decide you're gonna give up, um, somebody used the example at Eat, Strengths, and Orthodoxy of giving up music in the car. So maybe you give up music during, now I don't have a commute, so that would not be a sacrifice for me. But if it's something that you realize does take up a, a good chunk of time during your day, maybe you choose not to do that and instead you pray for people as they come to mind, just as your mind is wandering. That's one of a million examples of ways that you can partner giving something up with adding something in for the season of Lent to benefit others. Um, I would encourage you over the next few days, think through how you wanna spend Lent. Maybe it's I've given up enough and I'm tired and I just wanna get through it. Super duper okay. <laughs> um, this is if you want to press into this season and you feel like you have the margin and the invitation from the Spirit to do so, I would just encourage you to think through, even if you give up chocolate every year and you decide you're gonna give up chocolate this year, just think through if there's a way to be intentional about it in a new way or a way to partner it with a new practice in some way. Um, maybe you hate fruit and so instead of eating chocolate at night, you're gonna try some different fruits to understand the bounty that God has provided in, in the natural world. Now I'm making things up. But the point is, <laughs> the point is, think about how you can intentionally engage this season if you choose to do so. Um, I wanna wrap up just by talking about some of the ways that as a community, we are wanting to create these touchstone spaces um, during Lent this year. I love that Imago is a space where we always try to press into these seasons in the calendar. It's one of the things I love about this place, and this is a time when we have a lot of ways for you to, to press in, even if you don't do anything personally on a community level. Um, we have the small groups that Melinda talked about. Three different spaces where you can get to know some other folks at Imago, dig into this idea of walking through the darkness together, find some support if you're going through things, offer some support if you're not, or even if you are. Get to know some other folks and engage these 40 days leading up to Lent with an intention just to build some community. As a side note, I forgot to mention, you don't necessarily have to fast on Sundays during Lent. The Sabbath, even in the Old Testament, was a time of celebration. You do not give things up on, on the Sabbath. It's a day to celebrate all the things you already have. So that's why it's 40 days plus the Sundays. Sorry, that was a backtrack, but. 
Um, we will be having Eat, Drinks, and Orthodoxy for those who aren't doing the Wednesday small group in March. We'll be talking about almsgiving and other ways to show generosity to others. Um, it'll partner along with us talking about fasting this year, or I mean this month. Um, so that'll be a chance for you to come if it's one time that you want to engage Lent. Just talk through some of the ways that we can look at, at how we can help um, alleviate the suffering of those around us, not just monetarily. There are a lot of other ways that we can do that as well. Um, the sermon series that we're going to be going through is going to be on uh, walking through darkness. I think most of us can relate to at least having seasons of that. It'll be a good opportunity if you want to come in person. It's one of the challenges I'm making is to get my sale here on Sundays. Because again, it's a way to connect with one another as we walk through learning and digging into the word a little bit and understanding our faith together collectively. I learn from you all. When you share, as I ask questions up here, I hear things that I wouldn't have thought of. That's one of the beautiful things about coming into this space together. If you are here on a Sunday, we're also gonna be doing a Sunday school series um, for adults. Um, I know I am helping with one that's gonna be walking through ways to engage spiritual community um, by Doug Paget one of my favorite authors. Um, it's an older book of his, but it was foundational for me. So me, Vicki, and Elmer are gonna be running um, that Sunday school class. You don't have to get a book. We're gonna be putting it together as discussion. Is there another Sunday school class? Okay, that's it. You've got us or nothing, but <laughs> I invite you to come. Um, we have Ash Wednesday this week. This is the, the kickoff <laughs> to Lent. This is where we come and yes, it's, it's a little bit um, somber. It's a chance for us to really just acknowledge that, that we are weak sometimes, that we fail sometimes, and that we get to be held in our imperfections in a place that is full of grace and redemption and hope. And that when we're too weak to do better, there are people around us who will accept us and love us and will sometimes help us do better anyway, or they'll do better on our behalf. It's a huge thing, guys, and it's something that we experience in this community. Ash Wednesday is a place kind of like Longest Night where we get to come in and truly be as vulnerable as we want to be, knowing that there is a cloud of witnesses around us to hold us up. Um, it's a hard night because you face your own weaknesses. We give you lots of opportunities to, to examine the fullness of need as we walk through a season where we will celebrate that Jesus came to be the fulfillment of the answer to all of those needs. The more honest we are about where we lack, the more gratitude and understanding we have for the significance of who Jesus was and what he did. And then Holy Week. Um, there's Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Clearly you do not have to come to everything, but the church will have ways for you to engage all of those days. It's a chance for us to make the most of Easter. Um, and the reason isn't just so that we can be loud and peppy, it's so that we can understand this is the fullness of why we're doing what we're doing. We have placed our hope in something that has happened and is gonna happen again. Jesus is gonna come back. We don't know what that looks like. He's gonna make all things new. We don't know what that looks like. He's gonna redeem everything. We don't know what that looks like, but that is where we place our hope and faith. So when this world and these relationships and we give up on ourselves and we're disappointed by everything, 
we place our faith in the fact that this man, who is more than a man, who was born witness by Moses and Elijah, is coming back to do what he said he's going to do. And it's going to be for the benefit of all. So that's the invitation to Easter. That's the invitation to Lent. That's our invitation to you over the next 40 days. Thank you.